Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Recorded live. Hi, everybody. Today is April 8th, 2016, if you can believe it. And this is the Mixed Experience. It's the only live weekly show about being racially and culturally mixed. And I'm your host and resident mixed chick, Heidi DeRoe. What's going on, guys? So we're on a different day. We're normally on on Mondays. uh, But because of my travel schedule, it's Friday, and it worked out to get this guest who I was recently introduced to through a mutual acquaintance and friend. And when I heard her story, I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to know more. And I was very lucky that she said yes. Before I introduced her and her mom, it's, I, I keep forgetting, it is, it's actually, the, the book is called Little Brown Girl, but it really is about two little brown girls, or really maybe all little brown girls, Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself because before I bring them on the show, I wanted to make a couple of announcements, which I am wont to do. (laughs) One, uh, I am doing a ton of traveling upcoming in the next coming weeks, and some of it is actually uh, like work-related. I'm doing real live talking in real life, in front of real live people, which is terribly frightening, but I'm sure I'll get through it. One is I'm hosting the Oregon Book Awards on Monday in Portland, Oregon. I believe there are still seats available. I'm going to be wearing a cute dress. It's going to be tons of writers. They're giving out awards. Come say hello. Uh, I need friendly faces and eyeballs in the audience. It's Monday, April 11th in Portland, Oregon. Just Google Oregon Book Awards and get tickets and come and say hello. I'd really love to see you. So that's one thing. Uh, The end of that week, I'll be in New York City at Columbia University speaking on a panel about book writing. Uh, I'm an alumni of Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism, and I don't know if it's open to the public, the entire thing, but it may be that you can get into this panel discussion about book writing. I'll be talking on that panel on Friday, this coming Friday, a week from today. And then after that, the next week, I'll be in Texas. I'm so excited. Brazos Valley Reads has picked The Girl Who Fell from the Sky, my novel, as their community-wide read. So thousands of people in Texas are reading my book right now. And it culminates in my visiting the different schools and libraries and doing a speech on April 20th, which is free and open to the public. If you want more information, it should be on my website later today. Or you can tweet at me at Heidi DeRoe or email me, Heidi, at HeidiWDeRoe.com, and I'll email you the um, particulars of all of those things if I can't get them up on my website later today. The last thing, you know my project of love, the Mixed Remixed Festival. It's our third year. It's going to be on June 10th and 11th here in Los Angeles at the Japanese American National Museum. It's an entirely free event. Yes, it's not free to put on. So many of you were so great to donate to our annual Indiegogo campaign, and we did meet our goal, which was very exciting. And now it's time to party. We've opened registration. So go to the site, www.mixedremix.org. Save your spot. I think it's going to be so packed this year. 
And we will give priority to the people who have pre-registered. Um, obviously, there are people who will be there on-site, but the people who have pre-registered will get priority. There are some programs that have limited seating just because the venue has limited seating in those spaces. So uh, the priority goes to the people who show up first. We have a very special opportunity for six writers, actually, I'm sorry, five or six writers to work with Jamie Ford. Uh, you'll need to send in your manuscript to be accepted into that, but that's a really fantastic opportunity. Uh, get your manuscripts in as soon as possible. Okay, I'm breathless, but also it's because I'm excited. I um, heard from a friend about this really wonderfully amazing young woman named Cassidy Arkin, and she'd written a book called Little Brown Girl, A Daughter's Quest to Find Her Truth, uh, co-written with her mother, Sandra Rogers Hare. Now, I wanted to give you a bio of these guys before I started, and as I thought about it, it just wouldn't, it just wouldn't do. Uh, whatever I said about them wouldn't make really sense because their stories are complicated, the way I like it. You know, I like complicated stories. And I wasn't able to summarize anything about them in two or three sentences. And so that's why we're going to have a conversation. Uh, I'm super excited today to welcome the, the authors of the book, Little Brown Girl, Cassidy Arkin, and Sandra Rogers here. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. How are you? How are you <laughs> doing well? Well, so I'm going to throw this out, you guys. It's my standard first question, and I'm going to ask Cassidy to answer it first, if you would. What are you? I am a woman of um, of mixed race who was born in what we would call um, an engineered or a first-generation community. But more importantly, I'm I'm a true American. Nice. You, you get it right. It's a good answer. <laughs> there was no right answer, just by the way. <laughs> uh, and so you've, you've had a chance maybe to reflect since you know the question, Sandra. Uh, what are you? Wow, I wish I was prepared as Cass. I'm <laughs> also a woman of mixed race, uh-huh. born in the last century, to um, a woman who was Norwegian, and my father was African American before it was actually legal to become for African American and white people to get married. And I didn't know all that as I was growing up. None of us does know the mysteries of adulthood as we grow up. So Cass and I are similar in that we both had to find ourselves and discover who we were being born into strange circumstances. Yeah, well, so Little Brown Girl is is a, well, it's a beautiful book, one, but it's a lovely book of, that's a story about how you both came into into brownness, kind of, I want to say. I, I don't know if that's the best way to say it, but mm-hmm. Sandra, obviously you came up in a, a generation, I guess, that was just about 10 years before me, so... It, my parents, too, were married before it was illegal for them to be married and ended up getting married in Denmark where they didn't know to have anti-miscegenation laws, I guess. And um, But what's so powerful about this is that the stories are told in tandem. It's as if you both discovered the way in which race operates in America in a similar way, but there was no way to share that in 
in the relationship that you had. Can can you tell me a little bit about Cassidy, why you decided to do the story this way? Because it very much could have just been your story. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great question because originally I was kind of just writing it from my experience and my wanting to learn more about Synanon, the organization I was born in. But the more I, I discovered and I researched about, you know, what my first home was, the more I recognized and I realized, my gosh, I don't know the true story about my mother. And I started to discover certain things that may have seemed obvious, you know, to, uh, to any person. But it was just fascinating to me to re- realize that my mother had a story. And no one can tell that story better than my mother. And the more research I did, including, you know, reading your book, I recognized that there are so many other young women who were raised with extraordinary stories of being raised non-traditionally. And they too had a story to tell. And the story was impartial to not just their experience, but their mother's. So I would pull from my mother, meaning I would force her to sit down with me at the, at the dinner table and start to speak to me about why did you move into Sinan? What was the experience like falling in love with my father? Why did you decide that the outside world was just not good enough for you and for your morals, you know, and raising your family? And, you know, a lot of that and a lot of those answers, I felt like were the answers of so many other people out in the world. And those were like challenges that were being overcome, great challenges. And, um, and I wanted to be able to create a dialogue from not just, little brown girl and my story being born there, but I wanted to create a dialogue like yours of all the other little brown girls, and I don't mean so much of color. I mean other people around the world who have stories that are mutually inclusive and share those so that we can start that discussion and share our stories. Yeah. Well, I wanted to back up just a little bit because I think the the hook for the story in terms of if you're thinking about like making a movie, you know, I don't know who would play you, but it, the hook really, and the thing I think that is um, titillating to people is that you were born and that you, your mom, Sandra, you went to Synanon, which at that time was a developing utopian community. So can you tell me a little bit about what Synanon was and why it was so attractive to you? Well, to, to those of uh, the people listening in, Synanon is most known as a adult feed rehabilitation organization, and it started back in the 50s with alcoholics and then took on um, heroin addicts, and at that point, a lot of the alcoholics left because they felt they were better than the drunks. And then I came along in about 1965, along with a number of other people called Squares, And we thought of ourselves as being law-abiding, tax-paying citizens, and we were responsible members of the community. I was a teacher. Some were social workers, bankers, um, stockbrokers, architects, the whole thing. And we started playing the synagogue game, which is what attracted me. Basically, it's conversation that's completely uninhibited, no rules, no bosses, 
no matter of um, being polite or impolite, you can say the unsayable. You can imagine that as a black kid raised originally in a white community and basically white world, I really loved the prospect of being able to say everything that was on my mind and ask all the incorrect questions that it just isn't done in the outside world. And as more and more of us got involved playing the game, which was a lot of fun, I we got the idea of why don't we live in Sinan and live the nice, clean, healthy lifestyle that these dolphins are living. And Sinan said that was a great idea, except we have a 501c3 certificate and we can't have people living here who can afford to take care of themselves. We are taking, we're a charity and we're taking care of people who can't. So we said, we have an even better idea. We will pay you to live in Sinanon. We will pay our way. And so what each of us did, most of us in Northern California, was that we gave Sinanon our entire salaries and moved in. And so that made it all right to have us there. There was no problem with taxes. And shortly after I moved in, Sinanon hired me to work in the school which actually I'll call my, my these friends of mine peers. They were we were all a bunch of squares. We built this school. We bought a property up in Marin County called Walker Creek, and we put tin buildings on it and insulated them with monotherm and built bunkhouses and schoolrooms and dining hall and all kinds of things. And we started building a school. Um, so, so the, the but sitting on. It developed, its origins um, were to create essentially a utopian society, as Cassidy said. And the idea was to create a community that was egalitarian and uh, worked communally. Uh, but it, then it, it did change over time. But I guess what I was, I was really wondering was when you first entered the community, when you became a part of it, was a lot of that attraction because you could be raceless? And and the reason I ask you that in that way is that when I was reading the book, I thought, you know, I I don't know if I'll relate to this. This is about someone who is growing up in a utopian community that, that then obviously turned out to not be a place that you thought was a good place to raise your daughter. But in the same way, you know, my dad, who was African-American, very much loved the idea of living uh, in Europe, in particular in Denmark at that time, because he felt, like Cassidy says, opening of the show, he felt very American, and he felt raceless in a way. Um, was that also part of the attraction for you? Absolutely, yeah. And let me make a tiny correction, which may not matter. Synanon did not start out as a utopian community. It just started out as a storefront, don't fiend rehab place like you find in many um, poor parts of cities where you have storefront churches. Mm-hmm. This place people came and tried to dry out or get clean. And the the utopian community, the utopian conversation really started around 1964, where the founder was saying, "Oh, we're doing so well. Let's let's live a lifestyle like this. This is something mm-hmm. all of America, the entire, you know." And basically, when the squares moved in. We built, it was called um, Synanon 3. Synanon 1 is sort of drunk, Synanon 2 is Dolphins. Synanon 3 was the alternative lifestyle, full-blown 
we called ourselves the richest hippie commune in America. And I did feel raceless, but more than raceless, I felt like I could be entirely myself. You know, when I went to socialist workers' meetings, I had to be kind of intellectual and political. And when I hung out with my black friends, I had to be kind of on point and quick with the verbiage and, you know, snap my gum. And when I was with this place, I could have all the different sides of me show at once and someone would be able to connect to me. Right, right. Well, so Cassidy, you were obviously born there. When did you know that you were living in a place that wasn't like the rest of America, at least? You know, I knew from the moment that I could start thinking for myself that this was not, it was not like the rest of the world. And the reason why I say that is because while we as um, Synanon children were being raised as Americans, there was nothing American about the way we were being raised. And we were continually, as children, being exposed to the newcomer children from the outside who were moving into the, into the Synanon village, into the children's community. So they were telling us stories about the outside world, about rock and roll and about how they could eat sugar and they had long hair <laughs> and they, you know, and what it was like to have like a family, like to have a mother and a father and a bedroom where we had bunk houses and we didn't have hair and everything was about being eternally honest. Like, I mean, there were no secrets among the children. Even if we were three or four years old, we were really, really on that adult perspective and the mindset. So that being well, said, well, I was going to say, you brought up something that was really interesting just now. Part of the way that the community was constructed was that the children, for the most part, were raised separately than the adults and that you were not necessarily connected to the parents you had. But throughout the book, both of you write about this innate closeness and that time and time again, there were these moments where even though you knew what the community norms and uh, whatever the community rules were, you were always finding time to connect with each other. Why do you think that was? And do you think that saved you from continuing on with the community when things started to go wrong with, with the society? Well, to start with, when, when you're a child, everything that is going wrong, even though in the, in the real world, if you're an adult, you say, that's not right. As mm-hmm. children, we had to accept. As sitting on children, you accepted what came your way because we had to know that no matter what, we had to trust. So yeah, I know. Said, yeah, Children map on a kind of schizophrenia onto themselves. They're like, okay, I understand this is not normal, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll with this. You're going to roll with it. But the thing that kept me actually believing and knowing and understanding that there was another world much greater out there was my mother. And that goes, you know, that kind of draws the line between connections of mother and daughter and parents. And mm-hmm. my mother, unlike a lot of the other kids and parents, was very much in my life in the synagogue in the children's village. And so that love, while she didn't speak to me a lot about what was happening and how the, you know, the community was devolving, she was there enough to be able to give me some insight that things weren't right. And no matter what anyone would say, what was happening inside me, I was breaking down, you know, and you're too young as a child to wonder 
and to, to think, oh, my God, what are we going to do? But in my heart, I knew there was something that wasn't right. This was not a normal family. This was my culture. This is what I was born into. I loved everything on to this day, every single person who lived there who I'm in connection with. I'm connected to you, and I have respect, and I love them. But something wasn't right. Hence, I longed and yearned to live and journey to the outside world. It was like that storybook journey of someone who was moving from a small town, and they wanted to go to New York City to see the big light. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to see what it was like to be an American kid without all the constrictions and the regiments and without having to be the person who had a demonstrator. I wanted to be just like all the rest of the kids. But what was absolutely ironic is that when we finally did move to the outside, it was the worst, um, it was the first, worst departure from sitting on into the outside world because I felt like this was misery. This isn't America. This isn't the world where we're all accepted. I am being, I am not being accepted by this group of people. I am now a brown girl. I am now this, you know, this girl who's a little awkward. There were so many things that divided me and separated me from everyone else that my journey into becoming a true American started when I actually left the society and left it and on. And, you know, Part of writing this book from a young age, because I was always writing notes and, like, asking questions, was to really kind of get some perspective on being normal. Right, yeah. I mean, so I kept thinking as I was reading about this, and Sandra, you, you know, you have this moment where you make the decision to, to leave, to take yourself and Cassidy away from that situation and go back into the real world. And I'm... I just think that's so brave that you did that knowing that you were going back into a world that had been unaccepting of you. Did you have more hope for where we were in America at that point or or were there just no other better options? Yeah, I think it was more the second. It's kind of like when a woman is in transition at birth. You don't really have a choice at some point. You know, gradually I matured. I joined Synanon when I was very young. I was a member of it for 14 years, and then I was 38, and I began to see the world differently. I had seen Jonestown, and Sinanon had donated the Levi jeans that those people were lying on their face dead wearing. He had donated the Adidas tennis shoes to them that they were wearing. I began to really think in a more mature way, and Cass was five, and I'm was thinking, I don't want Cass growing up in this narrow of a culture and mm-hmm. in this narrow-minded culture because by that time, Sinanon thinking had become quite ossified, really. Uh, it was almost like there were things you should and could say and things that you must never, ever say or think. The whole freedom of speech and the conversation of the game had disappeared. I could find nobody who would really play the game, and so I started thinking about it, and I simply told them when I decided to leave, I said, look, I just want a different zip code. I need to live in a large <laughs> society, a more integrated world, but I knew that I had absolutely no money and no guarantee that I'd be able to get Cassidy and me into a life that was safe or productive or even pleasant, 
And sure enough, we moved into West Oakland, and it was pretty, pretty dangerous. I mean, yeah. I think we were there for a couple of months, and um, the husband in the house in front of us shot his wife in the head with a gun and killed her, and that's what triggered uh, my packing cast up and leaving West Oakland. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it wasn't a matter of bravery, though. It was a matter of we have got to get out of here. We have to yeah. leave. This piece is not not what it was cracked up to be when I joined a long time ago. And Cassidy, this was the time when you were at most in turmoil over, okay, I'm I'm in this whole other world. Who who should I be? Who who did right. you tell you were at that point? What what would you say? Um, I think for me, I I was always a little bit um, bit of an eccentric child. So that became a part of my personality and being accepted. I was just different. But I think that um, when I moved to Oakland and moved to the outside world, there was just so – it was like being an immigrant child because I was so – I say that often, too, because when I moved to the States at age 11, we'd been in Europe, and all of a sudden there was black and white, which was shocking to me. And I felt like a racial immigrant. Yeah, yeah. And you you stay true to that culture forever, and yeah. and so my I guess my thought and you know everyone has a story to tell, and I think the most important thing in writing this story was to be able to tell my version of who I am and what I came from because if you go and you Google Sinanon and you go and you Google what happened, you're going to get a lot of sensational information about all these things happened. But the truth of the reality is, and I'll stay true to this, that my experience living in Sinanon and being a child born there was of absolute love. Now, there's highs and lows, and there were a lot of things that happened that shouldn't have happened, but I will stay true to it because it was love. And it was an experience that I think evolved from a group of people who wanted to do better for the, for the world. And, you know, what was the worst part is that the dream that we thought the outside world was about, meaning America, which as children we thought it was better, was not better. And it took me years and years to figure out that, you know, really all societies have somewhat of a cultish, you know, POV perspective. And that we have to be inclusive of other people's stories and understand them more in order to understand ourselves in this society, in order to understand how to speak to each other. It's not just, as my mom would say, being able to speak English or Tagalog or speaking, you know, um, Farsi. You really have to understand how to to speak the language of, of respect and kindness and love and separate yourself from the whole idea of, like, religion and race and class really understand who your neighbors are and what your history is and who your mother was and try and instead of say that is a bad thing or that is a good thing, try and understand from their perspective before you actually jump out and say this is wrong or this Mm -hmm. is the way things are. And, you know, I I think that the final exclamation mark on putting the book together was obviously the way that I was born, you know, being born by artificial insemination, not knowing your identity and having – Someone for the, from the time that I was literally eight or nine years old asked me, what are you? Well, um, I was born in a first-generation community that no longer exists, so I have no way of going back to that community. I was born by artificial insemination. I don't know what my biological father was because my donors were doctors. 
I live in the United States, but I moved to the Soviet Union. I've come back. Everything about my who I am is multi. And <laughs> I like that. Yeah, and I think for you even, Heidi, it has a lot to do with not so much having one blanket statement and identity to who you are, but being comfortable enough to know that this is me. I don't have to be one label, or I don't have to be Christian and, you know, um, American. You can be your own person and believe in God or believe in politics. you just got to know what you're talking about and know yeah. yourself. Well, you know? well, so one thing, you, you know yourself, but also you said uh, know your mother. And really, this is one of the most striking things to me about the book and actually something I've I, write about in my novel and I continue to write about um, in my other writings that without knowing, you know, that maternal or paternal story, uh, your own story is not necessarily entirely informed. And I don't necessarily mean just your biological uh, family. I mean, the the people who raised you, whoever they were, you know, your aunts mm-hmm. or your uncles and things like that. There's a film that we're showing this year at the festival called Fall 7, Get Up 8, and it's about uh, these three women who were uh, what are called Japanese war brides. They married American GIs, moved to the States, and had kids who were uh, mixed race, obviously, and these three daughters are interviewing their mothers, and there's something so powerful about seeing the ways in which these women of different generations who are connected to each other come into understanding race, but even more importantly, talking about race and racial difference with each other. And I'm wondering, do the two of you have any advice for listeners? Because I know there are a lot of listeners out there who uh, tune in because they're thinking, gosh, I need insight, but I also know how to get inside this conversation with people in my family. Do you have any words of advice for, for you know, white moms with mixed kids or black dads of mixed kids? Um, how do they start to have this conversation that you guys have so powerfully in this book? Mm-hmm. I don't know, Sandra? Well, I would just say do what we did, talk. Find somebody to talk to, whether if that conversation doesn't go where it may lead to another, uh, read your book. <laughs> fell from the sky and find somebody who who also read it and find out what they think because the more you talk with different people, the walls start me- melting and you start realizing, oh, I'm like 10 feet away from being Norwegian. I'm three feet away from being African-American. Oh, I relate to this uh, Native American. I relate to this person who's political. And you'll find your footing what Cass discovers in the book, or I think what her book reveals, is that we all are little brown girls. Um, yes. We we are all people who can only find our identity by connecting to other people. And if you if you just keep it to yourself, of course, you may stay in the dark a long time. But if you have sort of ideas, you sort of look for people who, well, what do you think about this? Are you the same way? And then gradually you'll get your own footing and know who you are. Well, I, and so I wanted to I want to follow up on that because I that I ab- absolutely advocate and I adhere to and I co-sign and thumbs up all of that. And I think though there are moments where it's difficult to make that first approach. Even you know when I know you know when I'm at like a farmer's market, I I see these multiracial families because 
multiracial families love farmers markets, and mm-hmm. I'll see these mixed families, <laughs> and I, I'm kind of like grinning at them and nodding at them. You know, my version of the black nod to interracial families, and I can see like they do not see me in them. Um, or I actually have had the experience where I've been rebuffed when I tried to make the approach to a family saying, hey, like, I can't remember the specifics, but it was innocuous and it was polite. But the mother was very unhappy that I mentioned the word race in front of her children. Is Do you have any advice for me? About, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess that's what I was really asking. Do you have advice for me about how do you make that conversation part of a general conversation where people don't feel like, oh, my God, if you bring up race right now, our family will explode. And definitely don't mention race around the kids. I really understand what you're saying. I connect to it so well. I should have mentioned the thousands of times that I've been in a similar situation, and sometimes the families are very suspicious of you. But I have found my best connections are when I'm in kind of a humdrum situation where I'm helping, you know, when I'm just talking to somebody and we're either waiting for some time to pass and one little thing leads to another and to another and gradually they're smiling and talking until you may be waiting in line uh, to, to, to check out at the counter or you may be at a dentist's office or at Kaiser in the emergency room, something like you just little, if you come on straight to them and say, hi, you know, I think that we may have something in common. I hear you're, you know, I want to say this to the Dutch because we have very close <laughs> And I say, you know, you look like a giant. Are you Dutch? And that is <laughs> a rebuff. Instead of feeling complimented, <laughs> these people feel ambushed. So you sort of, in cinema, the way we broke down the wall so that we could play the game was we would show up and we'd be really dressed up and looking quite trendy, you know, so I had my mini skirt on and so on. And they'd say, before we play the game, we really need to paint a wall. Before we play the game, we need to unpack these boxes and put these cans of food on a shelf. And by the time we got through that mundane task, we found out, oh, you're from Minnesota. Do you still have outhouses in Minnesota? Oh, you're Mm -hmm. from New York. Do you know, you know, it goes like that. So it's kind of like start with something, help somebody pick up something they dropped. And yeah. they'd say, oh, how old is your child? Is that six months? Oh, I have a dog, too. Do you, you know, just start small. Because if you come head on with what's really in your heart, they're going to run away screaming. Yeah, yeah. Well, you guys, I am so glad we had a chance to talk. I can't believe the time has gone by so quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sandra and Cassidy, this is a really brave book, and I'm so glad you wrote it. And I hope people will check it out. It's called Little Brown Girl. It's available on Amazon. It's also a beautiful book. It has lovely pictures and graphics. (laughs) Thank you. You did a really good job with this. (laughs) Before you go, what's the next step with this? Are you working on turning it into a movie at this point, or or do we just have the words here? Yeah. Um, Well, right now it's the idea for it, and what we're doing is it's a three-part project. So the book was um, an ode that my mother and I wanted to give to whomever decided to pick it up. And that goes to the second tier, which is now it's in development with um, three amazing producers for a TV series. Um, that's so exciting. Yeah. So that's, you know, so it's a, there's a TV component. 
And then the next step is obviously, um, you know, a film. And as you know, all projects take time in terms of, um, you know, developing. But, you know, there are two networks that are very interested in it, and there are um, directors that are looking at it currently as um, as a film. So we're very happy and proud. And, you know, not to say too much about it, but I think the greatest thing for me is being able to, when you feel something in your heart and you can feel that story, is being able to somehow use that as a vehicle to bring it to life. And when you bring it to life, whether it makes it big or not, to me, this is, the victory is that you put your word into this beautiful place where the rest of the world has access to see and experience and learn from. So I love I'm the way you say happy. that because I, I always say to people, you know, you know, it took me 12 years to write and publish my first book. It may take 12 for the second one too at this point, but they they say, well, why did you keep going? And I said, well, it's not because I wanted a book. It was because I wanted to share a vision. And and that's what you've done here, which I I congratulate you on and I thank you for as well. So, Cassidy, where can people find you if they want to keep up with development? Um, Facebook is the best way. You can always reach out to me personally. And you can always just, like, reach out to me. Um, you know, you can find me online. Um, I'm currently in development for a, a new show, so hopefully you'll be seeing me on air. Um, but until that great. happens, yeah, you can always email me, um, C-A-S-S-I-D-Y-A at hotmail.com. And um, Facebook, Cassidy Arkin, that's the best way to reach out to me. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for your work and for this conversation. I hope you'll keep in touch. I hope we can convince you to come out to the festival maybe next year. Oh, my gosh, we'd love that. <laughs> well, we'll talk about it offline. That, that would be awesome. Um, this has been so great to talk to you. I, I will be in touch very soon. Fabulous, and thank you so much for having us on your show. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, wow. So you guys really take this up. It's so fascinating because, seriously, I I was like, well, how will I relate to this? Well, I totally related to it. And, again, the most powerful piece of it for me was to hear these two stories in tandem, um, the ways in which they are both discovering things about themselves in their lives that maybe they weren't able to articulate at the time. And, it's just really powerful to see it written down. Uh, it's really, it seems like a, a treasure to me. So do check it out. It's called Little Brown Girl, Cassidy Arkin, and Sandra Rogers Hair. It's available on Amazon. Um, I'm Heidi DeRoe. This is the end of the show. Thank you for joining me today. Next week, I will be on at an unknown time because I'm traveling so much. I'm not quite sure when the show will happen uh, No, I do. Next week, it's happening on Wednesday. Tune in on Wednesday. I have a special guest co-host, Elizabeth Hudson. So excited. I finally got her on next Wednesday. But the week after that, it's an unknown time. So keep up to date on the Talk Shoe page, and it's always posted there. Uh, Also, if you have a chance to review the show, that would be great. Go on over to iTunes and review it, um, or tweet at me, at Heidi DeRoe, or email me, Heidi, at Heidi W. DeRoe. Thank you for the most recent emails. Again, I I had someone I wanted to shout out, and I don't have it in front of me right now. Ah, I will make sure I have it in front of me next week. Thanks so much for joining me. I will talk to you guys next week again. Bye-bye. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. 
Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.